Well, good morning, IEC. It's good to see everyone. My name is uh, Pastor Steve Winstead, and for the past couple of weeks, we have been uh, celebrating Easter on the global calendar. It was Easter, and we had Palm Sunday, and we had Resurrection Easter Sunday last week. Well, this Sunday, we're picking back up in a series that we were in before Easter. We were in a series on this glorious little book called Philippians. The Apostle Paul wrote it, and he wrote it to one of the best churches that he ever started. And the passage we're in today is very timely for Easter, for just being right after Easter. It's actually one of the most glorious passages in all of Scripture. Some have called it the mountaintop the Mount Everest of Scripture, and we'll be looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And it's the amazing story of how the eternal Son of God, always been the eternal Son of God, took on flesh. He left eternity and entered time and space and entered into this world to live life as a human so that we would know how God intended humans to live and not only that, to go further to make a way for humans, you and I, to be reconciled back to God. Well, this little passage, some scholars have said they believe it may have been a hymn of the early church. Others say it may have been a a pope piece of poetry that the church would recite at communion. We're not exactly sure, but it has a beautiful, unique structure. And we don't talk about scriptural structure here a whole lot, but I want to point you to this structure because it's unique. It starts with Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God in glory, in eternity at the highest place. And then he descends, and he comes to the lowest place that he can go to death, even death on a cross. It forms a V. He comes low, and then he goes up. God elevates him to the highest place that he can go back in eternity. So it starts with Jesus in eternity and ends with Jesus in eternity. But in between, he enters time, space, and takes on flesh here in this amazing passage. Now, many will study this passage as a piece of theology as an understanding of what we call Christology, understanding who Christ is. And I'll tell you, it is that. But that's not the primary intent that Paul had when he wrote it. His primary intent was that this, it wasn't that this be a piece of theology. It was that our understanding of who Jesus is would impact the way we live. You see, we don't learn about God. We don't study God just to fill our heads with knowledge so we have greater understanding. No, we study God and we learn about God because we love Him and we adore Him and we worship Him and we want to become more like He has intended us to be. And that's what this passage is about. So if you would please stand with me. We're going to read this passage. Today, I'm going to be reading from a version of the Bible called the New International Version, the 1984 edition. So it's different from what I usually read from, but it's a version I wanted us to hear today. So if you don't have it or you're not there, the words should be on the screen behind me. 
reads, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who in being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God, God exalted him to the highest place that uh, exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Lord, your word says that the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever, and this is the word that was preached to you. Lord, unless you speak today, nothing of significance will be spoken. So speak, Lord Jesus, we need to hear from you. In Christ's holy name, amen. Now, to understand this passage, we have to put it in its context. So let me tell you what's been happening here in the book of Philippians. Philippians, Paul writes to this church in Philippi a thank you note. He opens introducing himself and then he thanks this church for sending him financial support. You see, Paul is in prison. He's in house arrest prison. And in this style of prison, Paul has to cover all his own expenses. But it's sort of hard to cover your expenses when you're in prison and can't go do any work. So Paul needs people to support him, and this church in Philippi sends him a contribution which he thanks them for. He also prays for the church, and then Paul speaks of his own condition. Paul says, even though he's in prison, he has joy, and he can have joy because joy is not predicated mandated by your circumstances. Joy is based on Christ. It's based on our relationship with Him. Now, happiness can be based on our circumstances, but joy goes beyond that. And Paul, even though he's in prison, he has great joy. And then he turns and he begins to exhort the church to encourage them to build them up and he starts to exhort the church with these words in verse 27 of chapter 1 only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so everything we're going to see today is under that banner let your life be worthy of the gospel this is how we're to live in light of the gospel and he's calling for our lives to be worthy of this and then in verse 2 of chapter 2 he says make my joy complete and Paul is showing them how this church in Philippi can make his joy complete. You see, as I mentioned, this is a fabulous church, but they do have issues. There's no perfect church. Don't ever think a church will be perfect. It won't be perfect until Jesus Christ returns because we are broken, fallen people. We're sinners in need of a Savior. 
That's why we gather, because we recognize we need our Savior. And in this church in Philippi, there are two women. He'll talk about them in verse chapter 4. These two women are not getting along. They're at odds with each other. And because they're at odds with each other, it's creating disunity within the church. People are beginning to take sides with these two women. And Paul writes the passage that we read today to pull the church back to greater unity. That's what this passage is about. You see, the enemy loves disunity. You look out in our world and disunity reigns and rules. Oh, the news stations, they love disunity. Disunity sells. Disunity gets people to click on stories. Disunity gets people to watch the news. Disunity gets people on social media to pay attention. Disunity is big business. And people like disunity. The world loves disunity because in our flesh, disunity serves as a odd, strange form of comfort. Makes us feel like we're not so bad. When we see somebody else that's worse, worse off, in a more difficult situation, makes us feel like we're not doing that bad, and it comforts us in a little way. And disunity out in the world, it's to be expected. We're going to see it. But Paul is writing to two women in the church. This is disunity within the church. And Paul is not writing to this, these women to correct their theology. No, Paul was qu quick to correct those who had erroneous belief about Jesus, who had erroneous belief about the Word of God. Paul always stood firm on those things. Paul says that these women had labored with him in the gospel. No, they're believers. They are Christians, yet they are not getting along. Can that ever happen? Have you ever experienced that? I think all of us, if we're honest, we've experienced that disunity. And Paul here is going to address not unity from a unity perspective. He doesn't even mention the word unity in our passage today. It never comes out, but that's what everything's under, is under unity of the church here that he's speaking about because he's getting to the heart of it. I've seen that there's some prominent pastors who are writing books on unity. I've seen that there's some prominent pastors who are doing conferences on unity, and, and I don't know what all those are about. They're probably great and good, but I'll tell you this. Talking about unity never really achieves it. What achieves unity within the church of Jesus Christ is what Paul is going to show us today. You want unity? This is what we pursue. This is what we get after. Because anytime you find disunity, be it outside these church walls or be it inside the church with the people of God, you always have the same thing, pride. Anytime you have disunity, pride is always present. Somebody's pride is what brings about disunity. Somebody feeling like they have their rights, that they're in the right position. They've got the right viewpoint. They've got the right understanding. They've got it figured out and somebody else doesn't. You see, pride divides. Pride is destructive. Pride divides nations. Pride is why politicians fight. 
Pride is why marriages struggle and fail. Pride means destruction. That's what the problem is. And if you are experiencing disunity in your life, welcome to the club. Everybody, I think, experiences it in some way, shape, or form. But it's evidence of pride in our own lives. And I'll tell you what we typically do. When we experience disunity, we typically look and go, I've done something, but the other person, the other party, the other group has went far further. And in our pride, we say they're the ones who've got to move because I'm less guilty. And the other person's thinking the same thing. The other group's thinking the exact same thing and nobody moves. No, Paul is going to point us to how the church is to operate, how the church is to work, and he's going to point us to Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5. It says, Have this, um, it says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. In the ESV, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, this verse gets translated a lot of different ways. If you have a different translation, it's going to be said in a lot of ways. But Paul is pointing the church. He's just talked about this. He said, avoid conceit and rivalry. Those always divide. They're destructive. He said, instead, be humble. Instead, think of others as better than yourselves. He didn't say this. That's one of the hardest verses in Scripture. He didn't say, think of others as equal than yourself. We can do that somewhat. Think of others as better than yourself. Go that low. That's what he's calling us to. And then he says, your attitude should be that of Christ Jesus. That Jesus, he is our glorious example You want to know how God intended humans to live? Look to Jesus. He's the one who shows us how we're supposed to live, how we're supposed to love, how we're supposed to treat one another. He's our example, and he says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. I'm a person who needs examples. I need people I look up to. One of my favorite things to read is biographies. I love reading biographies of the saints who've gone before us because I need someone I can look and go, God, use them. They weren't perfect, but God used them. And with Jesus, we look and he is the perfect prime example of who we're to be like. I worked for several years as a youth pastor when I first started in ministry. And I was working in the United States and you could easily identify who the example for different youth were. If a youth liked football, you could tell it by what they were wearing. If they liked basketball, you could see it in the jerseys they wore. If a youth was a a fan of skateboarding, they dressed a certain way. If a youth liked a certain type of music, you could tell what they were interested in. You could tell who their examples are. You see, when we look to an example, we're to begin to look like that example. Over time, we're to look more and more like that example. In fact, when I first started ministry in the late 90s, there was a popular trend going around the United States. Now, I don't know if this made it to Africa or anywhere else, 
But people would wear bracelets, and they said WWJD on them with a question mark. Some of you I know have seen those. And it was a simple reminder asking this question, what would Jesus do? In my current situation, what I'm dealing with, how would Jesus handle the situation? How would he approach it? And I tell you, those bracelets were a good help, a good attempt, but they also had a caution. You see, if you're just trying to do what Jesus would do of your own willpower, of your own strength, saying, I'm going to try my hardest to be like Jesus. I'm going to try to live like Jesus. I'm going to try to love like Jesus. I'm going to do it on my own power. You're going to fail every time. And you're going to end up in this. You're going to end up in some form of legalism and some form of performance-based Christianity. And I'll tell you, performance-based Christianity is a miserable way to live. It's where you go, oh, this is what a Christian's supposed to do. This is how we're supposed to act, so I'm going to do that. No, a Christian is empowered by the Holy Spirit to live as Christ lived. You see, your attitude should be the same as Christ. It's not saying, you go do this. You cannot do this. You can only do it when the Holy Spirit does the work in you as you adore Jesus, as you draw near to Him. I love how the ESV translates this as well. It says, Your mind, you should have the mind among yourselves, which is yours. Okay, The mindset of Jesus Christ is yours. In Christ, you have it. You just have to lay hold of Him and draw near to Him. And this is the mind, brother and sister, that we have. In verse 6, verses 6 through 8, He's going to talk about Jesus' humiliation. Who being in very nature God. Jesus is God. He's God pre-existent. He's always been. There was not a time when Jesus did not exist. He has always existed. He was there at creation. He's the Alpha and Omega. John in his gospel says, The Word became flesh. And the Word dwelt among us. He was before all things. And in Him all things were created. Jesus has always been. Now I'll tell you, the world, and when the enemy wants to get the church off base, it begins to attack the person of Christ. Oh, some of the early church heresies were, well, Jesus is just a man empowered by God. And others would say, well, Jesus, he is God, but he couldn't have been a man. He just appeared to be a man. And others would say, no, Jesus was an angel. We still have those today. People in our culture, in our world will say, well, I think Jesus was a really good man. You should look toward Jesus. He's a, Jesus is a great example. Jesus was a great teacher. He was a great prophet. No, Jesus is the eternal Son of God, always has been. And when the world wants to attack something, attack the nature of who Jesus is. This is one of the things that we boldly defend as a church. This is one of those things, Paul here, there's things that Paul will talk about dividing over, and we divide over the nature of Christ. He is fully God, fully man, one person, two natures. It's difficult to understand, but that's what Scripture teaches. 
We stand firm on that. And when someone starts to roam from that, they're wondering, roaming from the truth that Scripture teaches, the truth of the gospel. Fully God, fully man. But it says that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now make no mistake, Jesus is fully God. Second person of the Trinity, he's equal to God. Yet when he came to earth, he didn't consider it something to be grasped. Now we use that word grasp often to mean understand, but that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about lay hold of. That Jesus didn't consider equality with God something he was to take hold of. That he was to grab hold of while he was here on earth. He didn't take hold of his divinity while he was here on earth. He didn't grasp it. You and I, we probably in our positions where we are, there are rights and privileges you have maybe where you work. And sometimes we set those aside. There's privileges we have that we don't grasp, that we don't grab a hold of. And Jesus here says he did not consider equality with God something to grasp, but he made himself nothing. That word nothing, kenosis in the Greek, it means to empty himself. He emptied himself, but he could not cease to be God. Just like you and I, we can't cease to be human. You can't stop being a human. Just like Jesus could not stop to be God, but he emptied himself of the privileges that came with being God Almighty. He didn't lay hold of all of his privileges. No, he emptied himself and instead taking the nature of a servant. Again, we're seeing Jesus, who is the eternal Son of God. He's lowering himself, lowering himself, and he comes to earth and he takes on the nature of a servant. King Jesus comes primarily to serve. And brother and sister in Christ, that's what we're called to do. We're called to follow his example and empowered by him. We're to be servants. And it said he was made in human likeness. Jesus was fully man. He came to earth. He had on flesh. He had a physical body. You see, the miracles that Jesus did and all the ministry Jesus did didn't start till after his baptism. If you look in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. The Holy Spirit comes upon him. And then in Matthew chapter 4, the very first thing it says is that he was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted. This ministry was one of being led by the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit guiding and directing him. It never appears. Jesus never does a miracle for his own benefit. Jesus operated on this earth like you and I do. Humans dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Jesus, fully man, fully God, lived and operated by the power of the Holy Spirit while he was here on earth. He did miracles. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He walked on water. But he was operating as a man, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, while he walked here on earth. He never ceased to be God. I heard a story of a tribe in Africa where the chief is the strongest man in the village. And this chief is the, the strongest man in, in the village. And one day a man was going down a well to collect water. It was a narrow well. And he's climbing down this deep well and he slips and falls and hits the bottom of the well and breaks his leg. Everybody in the village 
tries to get him out. But no one in the village is able to get the man out of the well, so they go and get the chief. Now the chief, he wore a royal robe, signifying that he was chief of the village. He wore a huge headdress, signifying that he was chief. And he comes and he sees the man down in the well, and he takes off his headdress. And he sets it aside. He takes off his robe and he sets it aside. And the chief goes down the well himself. The chief goes down the well and carries the man out of the well. He does what no one else in the village could do. He humbles himself and lowers himself and comes to save this man that nobody else could save, and that's what Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ did what no one else could do. He lowered himself, humbled himself, and came to our rescue. Now, did the chief cease to be chief when he set aside his headdress? Did he cease to be chief when he took off his robe? When he climbed down that well, was he no longer chief? No, he was still chief. Jesus Christ, when he emptied himself, he's still fully God. He's just not living in the fullness of his God. He's coming to live as a man, fully God, fully man. Did he cease to be God? No, he did not. He's fully God, fully man. Come to save and redeem and rescue us. And in the process of redeeming and rescuing us, he showed us how we are supposed to live, how we ought to live. He lowered himself to the point of a servant. You know, in the ancient world, a servant was to do anything his master asked. But if his master said, wash my feet, that servant could say, I won't do it. And that was perfectly acceptable. And at the Last Supper, Jesus, the servant, goes and washes his disciples' feet. In verse 8, it says he was found in appearance as a man. He humbled and became obedient to death. Jesus came and he was willing to die. He didn't need to die. He was God. He was fully man, fully God. He didn't have to die because he had no sin. You see, sin is the reason we die. When someone dies, it's a reminder they were a sinful person. That's what death reminds us of, is our sin. Because death is the consequence of sin. And Jesus came to conquer that old enemy, death. And it said he died even on a cross. Jesus didn't just die. He died like a criminal, hanging on a cross. He came to be beaten whipped, scourged, and put on a cross. And for three hours, darkness covered the earth. And during that three hours, He took the wrath of God that you and I deserve for all eternity upon Himself for that three hours. He lowered Himself. He went from eternity and lowered Himself as low as He could go. So Paul, speaking to this church in Philippi, and he's saying, look to Jesus. If there's not unity, look to Jesus. For these women, look to Jesus. Because you'll never have to stoop as low as Jesus. 
You'll never humble yourself as much as Jesus humbled himself. You never started in the place of glory and eternity with God the Father. And you'll never lower yourself to death upon a cross for the sins of the world. No, whatever you consider your humbling is, it pales in comparison to Christ. And that's what we're to look to. Because we're to be a people who are humble. And that's what brings our unity as we humble ourselves. That's what inspires and brings unity. But look at what happens next. It says in verse uh, 9, we're going to start to see we're at the lowest point, death on a cross, and now he's going to be raised up. It said, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name. God exalted him. That phrase for God, that phrase for exalt, in the Greek it's the word oopsie. Now, in the United States, we have a silly phrase that we'll use for a baby sometimes. We'll take a baby and we'll toss the baby in the air because babies are easy to toss in the air. And you just catch the baby. It's a little game you play. You catch, throw the baby in the air and you toss him up and you catch him. And we'll say this silly phrase, oopsie daisy, when we throw the baby in the air. And that's what God does. God lifts us up, and it's like us lifting up a baby. Takes no effort. God is almighty, and he can do that. And we're told in James 4.10 to humble ourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Same word, oopsie. He will exalt you. He will lift you up. You go low, God will lift you up. The idea of the Christian seeking fame and recognition and popularity for themselves because of their Christianity, because of their platform, is alien to Scripture. No, you go humble. You go low. You go low, and if God chooses to, He can lift you up. He's the one who exalts. We don't need to pursue being exalted. We pursue going low, humbling ourselves. That's what Jesus did. And it says God exalted him. And look where he exalts him to. To the highest place. There's no higher place than where Jesus is. He's at the highest place over all of creation. And it says he gave him the name that is above every other name. Well, in the Old Testament, there was a name that no one would say. Yahweh. The very name of God. In the New Testament, that word Yahweh is translated Lord. And Jesus is given the name Lord. He's given that name Yahweh. He's lifted up higher than any other in all of creation. And it says in verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Everybody's going to bow and worship Jesus Christ. That's where we're headed. Everybody, from all time, from all creation, all humans that ever live will bow and worship Jesus. For some, it will be the most glorious moment of their lives. For others, it will be the most tragic. You see, there's a day coming when you and I will worship Jesus and we'll say, we knew you. If you have trusted Christ, your God knew you, and I worship you. But tragically, there's going to be some who are going to go, 
You are, Lord. But I live my life ignoring you, denying you. I never knew you. And now, that person will be separated from God Almighty for all eternity. You see, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. As well, we go and declare the good news of the gospel. We've only got a limited time here on earth. And we've only got one message worth declaring over and over again. And that's the good news of the gospel that's pointed out here. And it says that every knee will bow. And it says every tongue will confess. This is pointing us forward to Revelation. One of the things I love, and you hear me talk about it a lot. I love the picture in Revelation. Revelation 5, 9, Revelation 7, 9, where it says every knee will bow, every tongue confess from all tribes, all peoples, all nations, all will be gathered at the throne of worshiping God. One of the things I love about our church is we're a diverse church. We have people from a lot of different nations. But I tell you, our diversity pales in comparison to the diversity that one day where everybody's worshiping God and I want to live for that day long for that day look forward to that day and that's where we're headed every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father everyone will bow you see this is a beautiful piece of scripture it gloriously points us to the truth of who Christ is like few other passages of Scripture do. He's eternal. He's always been. Yet He lowered Himself to death on a cross and God exalted Him up to the highest place. This is a magnificent piece of Scripture that we get to look at. You could spend hours studying this. I'll tell you today, we, we, we've just scratched the surface. There's so much more to dig into in this passage. But I want you to know that Paul gave this passage and this glorious piece of biblical truth of who Christ is to tell the church, this is your attitude. You go low. You be humble. Jesus went low. He's our example. He's who we look to. And you can only do this as you're empowered by Him. He told the church, He said, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Here's how your life's worthy of the gospel. You humble yourself. You lower yourself. And God's the one who lifts you up. I mentioned earlier that I enjoy biographies. One of my favorite pastoral biographies is about a man named Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon lived in the 1700s and early 1800s in England, and he became an 83 pastor of Trinity Church on the grounds of the prestigious Cambridge University. Now, at the time he became pastor, Cambridge had abandoned biblical truth. They had abandoned evangelical thought. And when I say evangelical thought, here's what I mean. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That the Bible, it is true. It is God's Word. We can stand on it. We can trust it. It's inerrant. That a person experiences personal conversion. That you're not a Christian just because you show up at a building where other Christians are. 
You're not a Christian just because you do good works. You're not a Christian just because you're kind to people. No, you're a Christian because you've placed your trust, your faith in Jesus Christ, and He has redeemed you. You are a new creation. Well, Charles Simeon taught this, but Cambridge, they didn't like it. And his church, they didn't like Charles Simeon. In fact, they hired another pastor and had him preach in the afternoons, and they would go to afternoon service and listen to a different pastor rather than listen to Charles Simeon who preached the Bible. Oh, he was a biblicist. He loved the Word of God. Every morning, he started his day with four hours in God's Word. Charles Simeon was a lifelong bachelor who studied God's Word throughout his 54 years of ministry. He loved Jesus. He loved the Word of God. But when he first started in ministry, he was so hated by his church that they locked the church pews. You see, people rented church pews in this day and time uh, and in that culture. So they would lock their church pews so nobody could come and hear him. He put chairs in the aisles and the church leaders came and threw the chairs out of the church. So people would come and sit on the floor and they would listen to Charles Simeon preach. They would gather outside the church walls to hear him preach. For the first 12 years of his ministry, they had another preacher preaching in the afternoon. He said he wrote his resignation letter and was preparing to leave the church because he had endured so much. And then he read and was reminded that Jesus went low. Jesus was humble. He was humbled to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he said, I can endure. I can endure by the power of Christ. And after 30 years of ministry at this same church, finally the opposition had ceased. Took him 30 years for the opposition. Those who said, we don't believe the Bible. We don't like you preaching Jesus. For that to end. And he would be at that church his entire life for 54 years. And Charles Simeon would gain such influence that he appointed pastors all over England. And he appointed pastors that loved Jesus and preached the, world, the word. And he changed a generation. It's an amazing story of what he did. And when Charles Simeon died, Cambridge University who originally forbade their students from going and hearing Charles Simeon preach, they closed for the day so that all their students could go and attend the funeral of this faithful gospel preacher. The entire city of Cambridge closed all their stores to attend the funeral of Charles Simeon, a man who endured a man who loved the Word of God and loved Jesus. And brother and sister in Christ, I know some of you have disunity. Maybe it's the place you work. Maybe it's with family. Maybe it's with friends. And disunity is always the presence of pride. And we have to go low. We humble ourselves. And church, I implore you, I encourage you, 
Humble yourself before the Lord. Allow Him to be the one to lift you up. Between Christians, there ought not to be disunity. Now, there may be disunity between people and what they believe, if they believe the Bible or not. Paul says there are things we divide over. But between people who hold to the truth, though we may experience disunity, when both people are going low and being humble, serving one another, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others, God will bring healing. And God will bring a unity that is unlike anything this world can offer. This world can't bring any semblance of true unity. It's only through Christ that we can experience it. So church, I encourage you. Process your heart. Are there areas that you need to repent? Is there pride that you need to confess that is keeping you from being unified with brothers and sisters in Christ? that you need to go low and confess it. Know this, you'll never go lower than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. I thank you for your word. It is true, it is glorious, and it is good. We can stand on your word. We can trust your word. And Lord, we confess that pride seeks to have us that we think more highly of ourselves than we ought, and we think worse of others than we should, and we don't think of you near enough. Lord, may our minds be set toward you. May our hearts be set toward you. And Lord, may you empower us to be a humble people, to be a people who go low. Lord, you set the example. You left eternity and entered time and space and died upon a cross. May we be willing to die for the sake of others. May we be willing to die that you may be glorified in and through us and in and through your church. Lord, if there's anyone here today who needs to repent, I pray that they would trust you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would open their eyes to the areas that they need to repent. And Lord, if there's anyone here who has never trusted you, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.